to What You Will Learn. My name is Adam Ashton. And my name is Adam Jones. Today, we're taking you through the best bits of the art of happiness by the Dalai Lama and a relatively no-name dude, Howard Cutler, a handbook for living. Happiness is, is important. Uh, the benefits of happiness, scientific studies have shown that happy people are more likely to attract a mate. They enjoy stronger and more satisfying marriages. They're better parents. They're healthier. They've got better immune function. They've got less cardiovascular disease. They've got better mental health and they live up to 10 years longer than less happy people. Mm, not only that, it extends to the workplace as well. We probably don't have to tell you this. The miserable people who you work with aren't really doing a good job when they're quite poor to be around. But happy individuals perform better and enjoy greater personal success on every level, including a higher pay packet. They're more productive, more loyal, less sickies. They show up more consistently, less conflicts with co-workers. They quit jobs less frequently and give customers more satisfaction. So, happiness is obviously an important thing that we want to be working towards. And what this book does is it is a bridge between the East and the West. As you mentioned, that bloke Howard Cutler uh, I don't know his credentials, but he's from the West. He's bringing a bit of West, a bit of science, a bit of psychology into it. And then you've got Tenzin Gyatso, uh, Dalai Lama, better known as. And uh, he's bringing the East. He's bringing his Tibetan Buddhism. And so, this book is a combination of those two factors, the, the spirituality of Tibetan Buddhism with the Western philosophy and psychology. You might think, what the hell does Buddhism have to do with us here in the West? We've got our nine-to-five jobs, we're going out on weekends, we're watching the footy, we're doing all these Western type of things. Don't all those Buddhists just hang out in caves all day and just meditate and what can they teach us about happiness in life? But it turns out quite a bit because they aren't a faith-based system, they're kind of scientific and what the Buddha taught, he said to his disciples, don't blindly accept my teachings out of faith. He wanted them to go out there and investigate the validity of all his theories and test the methods themselves. So if you think about it, over 2,500 years, a lot of the crap would have been weeded out of this compared to other religions where you're doing faith-based and um, you know so the scientific method can't take down faith-based systems, but scientific method can work with Buddhism because it's all about the in investigation for truth. So in this episode, we're going to start off by talking about happiness. We're going to talk about how we can get it and what stands in our way of getting from happiness. Then we're going to speak about relationships. We're going to talk about loneliness, empathy, and how our enemies can actually help us. And finally, we're going to talk about suffering. We know that shit happens to everyone, uh, but we need to find some way that we can accept it and move with it rather than being smacked down by all this suffering that is inevitable. The purpose of life is pretty clear to the big tail. It's to go out there and seek happiness. Whether one believes in religion or not, we're all seeking something better in life. So the very motion of everyone you come across, everyone's just out to go out in there and live a happier life. Howard, Howard Cutler, he, uh, he asked the Dal, what do you call it? The Lama? The Dal? The Dalai? The Big Dal. The Big Dal. Uh, the Big Dal, uh, Howard asked the Big Dal, is it really possible to achieve that happiness? And uh, the Big Dal says that on the basic level in the East, it is possible, but unfortunately in the West, the concept of achieving happiness seems ill-defined, it seems elusive, it seems ungraspable, it seems like something that's fleeting. It's not like you can actively work towards happiness, that happiness is just something that randomly happens out of the blue. Mm, yeah, for us, it kind of just seems like this ungraspable things and it's doesn't really seem like something you can develop and sustain simply by just training the brain in certain different ways. So we're going to start with this premise. The purpose of life is to seek happiness. 
and it is possible to achieve in your life and you can make positive steps in achieving it and this is the objective of this book. One essential point about happiness is that happiness is determined more by one's state of mind than by external events. So, there are the external things, you know, that might give you a temporary feeling of elation, you know, if you get some kind of success, if you get a pay rise, if you get a promotion, if you if you uh, pick up a... <laughs> yeah. If you pick up... I don't know, Del, Del doesn't know anything about picking up at the bar. He's uh, He's been decades long celibate. Uh, I wonder if... Um, well, it's kind of like the, the tale of sour grapes you know that tale like you just say all those things you can't get they're temporary i wonder if he got hung onto these grapes and if he changed his mind and said hang on this celibacy stuff it's no good i feel like it's easy to resist when you've never tried it i feel like if he tried it once and then resisted i'd give him a lot more a lot more credit yeah i'd like to challenge the big deal on that one but basically all these short-term things they can give you a bit of a a temporary feeling of elation or there might be some kind of temporary uh, tragedy that sets you into a a short-term pit of depression. But sooner or later, our happiness eventually uh, migrates back towards this certain set baseline. So, we've got this set level of happiness that it eventually returns to. I think everyone can have a think in their own lives. Like, think about a time when you really wanted to get something. It might have been that promotion, a car, that partner or anything like that. And then you got it. You get this moment of elation and fuck, this is fantastic. And then sooner or later, you're back at that baseline Mm. and go the other way. It it works both ways. Think about something like, I wish that doesn't happen to me. Um, It might lose mobility in the legs or something like that or some kind of sickness or lose a job. Awful at the start, but over time, you're back to this same level of happiness. So, it doesn't really matter Mm. what happens to you. It's all about setting this baseline happiness is actually going to think that makes you happier throughout your life. And that's the trivial stuff, you know, the, the promotion, the pay rise, the new car or you, or on the other side, you get your car smashed or you have a fight with a friend. They're sort of the, the smaller trivial things but it even goes beyond that to the bigger things and researchers showed that people who won the lottery, that won like a life-changing amount of money, they had this initial high but after a year or so, it wore off and they were back to where they were in terms of happiness and mm. the same the other way when someone was uh, com- confined to a wheelchair there, or there was some kind of catastrophic event or they lost their vision vision they was there was obviously this short-term sense of of sadness and despair at losing something but after about a year they'd regained the happiness back to where they were originally so it goes for the small things and those major life-changing things as well so whether we're happy or unhappy at any given moment has little to do with the absolute conditions you've got the things that are dealt to you in terms of external events a lot of it has to do with how you perceive your situation And one of the biggest hurdles here is really the comparing mind. And this is something that shapes our perception of our level of satisfaction of how we're actually going in life. Yeah, it's not so much about what you've got, but it's almost what you've got compared to other people. So, if your uh, neighbor paints a house and it looks so shiny and then you take a look at yours and think, oh... It's looking a bit weathered, it's looking a bit old. I probably need a new lick of paint here. So, even though the previous day you were pretty happy with how your house was looking, as soon as somebody else gets something a little bit better, you start comparing yourself to them. Yeah, I, I don't know where I heard this. It just popped in my brain. But someone, if you're going to buy a house or something, you've got two options. You buy a beautiful house in a poor neighborhood versus a shitty house in a rich neighborhood. If you look at this, what's going to give you more satisfaction? Buying the, where you're the king dick of the, the shitty neighborhood, <laughs> you're going to feel a lot better. 
<laughs> it is, and that's it's probably I don't know. I think in terms of like real estate investing, they always say the the worst house in the best street is good. But imagine if you're living in that worst house around all these millionaires who got these phenomenal mansions, you'd be feeling pretty shit out. Yeah, you would. But uh, <laughs> but they say that the best uh, thing you can do is not really to earn a whole lot of money, but it's to earn a hundred bucks more than your wife's <laughs> sister's husband, because that's your your immediate source of comparison there. Yeah, absolutely true. That's you there, Ollie. If you listen, <laughs> <laughs> have you got him covered? I think we're pretty competitive, mate, so I'm going to – we'll see how we go in a few years. <laughs> of course, we can compare things other than income. There's loads of other stuff we can look at, intelligence, beauty, just genuinely more successful and if someone's doing better than you in any kind of area, it can breed envy, frustration and just general unhappiness. But we can use this same principle in a really positive way. So rather than comparing ourselves to those who are just doing much better than you, you can actually look down on the people who've got less than you and just reflect on all the things that you've got and in doing so, you're going to be much more grateful for all the privilege and gifts that you've been given throughout your life. Yeah, it's not like you look down at all these people who are uglier, dumber, poorer than you are and laughing at them and saying, oh, I feel so good. But it just gives you that sense of humility. By looking at people who are less fortunate than you, you can reflect on what you've actually got. Uh, Another big issue, a big hurdle that stands in our way of happiness is in the West, we're sort of fueled by this material acquisition. We just want more and more and more things. We're bombarded by the ads. Everybody's always buying something new. We're never happy with what we've got. There's new products coming out all the time. Uh, I've still got my iPhone 6. I just saw they announced the iPhone 12. So, I'm, you know, it's time to upgrade. There's, mm. there's always something new that you should be buying. And unfortunately, the things that we need, the things that we feel like we want and desire, they never really stop. Yeah, 100%. It's just a never-ending treadmill. And this type of desire can be really unreasonable. Because even if you keep acquiring, Asher, you get the iPhone 12 and say you get the Lambo or something like that, sooner or later, this treadmill, you're going to reach the point of something you can't get. Like you might want the Lambo and get there, which is pretty pretty big deal. Then all of a sudden, you want the jet. Like sooner or later, you're going to hit that point where you can't get something. So, uh, you're going to hit a dead end of discontent. So, our excessive desire... Uh, it always leads to greed. Once we smack up against that hard truth of reality, once we can't afford that super yacht, then uh, that's when our desire shifts from something that's fueling us to something that's just leading to great unhappiness. Yeah, this greed is a bit ironic because the underlying motive is to seek satisfaction and once you achieve the object, you're still not satisfied. <laughs> so, he says the antidote to greed is satisfaction and I like the word antidote because it is kind of an, a metaphor that implies that greed is a sickness, mm. which is pretty common, to, I think, in, be in the Western yeah. world that needs to be cured. So, contentment is the thing we're after to, for this cure. Now, there are two methods to achieve contentment. Now, one method is to obtain every single thing you could ever possibly want, all of your desires, all the money, all the houses, all the cars, the perfect mate, the perfect body. If there's, If you get everything that you want... You're going to be contented. You're going to be very happy. But you're not going to. But that's a very that's a tough a tough road to go down. A much more reliable method is not to achieve everything that we want, but to want everything that we have. Mm, I like it. Tenzin, the 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 Lama, the Big Dell. He says he never gets lonely. And the real reason he never gets lonely is it because he looks at every other human being in a positive angle. So, he looks at their positive aspects and by always looking for the positives in somebody else, it creates this immediate kind of uh, affinity. It gives them a 
an instant opportunity for connectedness. Mm. It's a real practical thing, I think. Uh, imagine if you're just sitting at a bar and there's someone there ordering a beer. And imagine if you just think to yourself, oh, that person just seems like a bit of a dick. <laughs> if you come across that person, there's going to be this fear, tension and kind of subtle anxiety when if you were to meet them and mm. say if two weeks later they're at their, uh, your friend's birthday party or something. But compare that with Adele here. He just assumes that this person is a warm, friendly human being. And when you come across that person, the interaction that you're going to have is going to be completely different. So, if you carry that thought and belief deep down with every single interaction you get, there's really no reason to feel any of that fear or loneliness or any kind of anxiety about other human beings. Yeah, with this attitude, we've got, we can approach every relationship with this initial sense of uh, connectedness, initial sense of affection, of openness. And with this attitude, even, even if the other person is unfriendly and responds to you that isn't in a positive way, at least you've approached them with a feeling of openness and you've got that opportunity to start off on the right foot and you've also got then that flexibility to change later. But in many cases, a lot of people just expect the other person to be the warm and compassionate mm. person. But not, not every person's the Dalai Lama in the street, are they? <laughs> so, if everyone's going around with this apprehension, going up against other people with apprehension, you're not going to have those warm, compassionate encounters that are really possible with the human experience. Yeah, it's easy to expect somebody else to be positive and think, oh, I'll be nice to the person if they're nice to me first. It's a lot harder to be the one who actively is the one who goes and thinks I'll be nice to them first. Yeah. Mate, a few years ago before uh, The Prince and Ordinary Men and Robert <laughs> Green fucked me up a little bit, I was. <laughs> I think uh, The Art of Happiness was one of the first books I read and I really carried this thought a lot, especially when it came to my Uber driving. So, I had about say 10,000 trips and I didn't give one person below five stars by memory because I really tried to carry this assumption that every person you came across was a good human being. Mm. It would be a bit different now if you do running. <laughs> well, even the, even the douchebag in the suit who jumps in the back seat straight on the phone, doesn't talk to your head down, Correct. maybe gives you an uh, every now and then and that's all you get from him. Give yeah, him five yeah. stars. Even the one who was on ice and um, oh, playing techers. And on the front and just... Um, That's a one star from me. Yeah. No. <laughs> but no, you've got to approach them with compassion and That's openness right. for sure. So, empathy is important when dealing with people on any level. And it's thinking that person on the phone who just hopped in the car and didn't say day isn't a dick. You're thinking it from their perspective. You're thinking, all right, they hopped in. Maybe they got a busy meeting. Maybe they're having a fight with their missus or, or anything like that. So, what the big Dal does is that whenever whenever he meets people, he approaches them from the standpoint that we've all got a lot of things that in common. We've all got a lot of basic things in common. If you think of the obvious ones, we've got the same physical structures, the same mind, the same emotions. But then if you think a little bit deeper, we're all born the same way. We're all going to die sooner or later. And all of us want happiness and do not want to suffer. So, there's a whole bunch of things that every single human on earth has in common. Yeah, the things like the secondary differences, things like color, religion, cultural background, you need to get past these things to uh, really think that the other person is same with you to just see the things that you share rather than your differences. Yeah, and dealing with other people, it's helpful to understand and appreciate the background of the other person you're dealing with, but recognize that deep down, we all want the same things. So, all this is good and well when you're coming across people who are just nice and friendly but every now and then you are going to come across someone who's an enemy and actively looking to take you down. So, the Buddhists, they don't see this as a bad thing. When this enemy pops up in your life, it's a bit of an opportunity. 
Yeah, imagine uh, the the opposite of the Buddhist approach, which is probably what what most of us go through. I can think of a few specific examples of myself. But if someone does something bad to us, we immediately think revenge. We think we've got to get them back. There's some kind of retaliation. We don't just cop it and move on. We just think, how the hell can we get them back? And it's probably a grudge we hold. It festers away for a little while. But that's just a vicious cycle because as soon as you do something back to them, they're just going to retaliate back to you. You're just thinking, what can I do back to them mm. later? It's just this never-ending cycle of spiral spiraling down. Well, nothing can really come good of that, right? Like, even if you hurt your enemy and they don't hurt you back, there's no real upside for you. You just hurt, <laughs> just hurt an enemy. Exactly. It doesn't. It doesn't at all make you happier. So, uh, retaliation, revenge, all these things uh, that we're trying to do to our enemies never lead to our end goal, which is making us ourselves happier. So we need to shift our perspective here to look at the encounter with an enemy as an opportunity to enhance your own patience and tolerance. If you think about it, the enemy is really a necessary condition to actually practice patience and tolerance with people. So, when you're around them and they're being a dick or an ass, um, you might feel this serious emotion flowing through your body, this anger, this resistance, this tightness in the chest and all that kind of thing. This is actually an opportunity for you to handle your emotions like that and maybe take a step to the, the balcony and use these moments to personally grow into someone better who can cultivate positive emotions. Yeah, if you think about it, your daily conflicts are going to be pretty confined to just a couple of people. There's probably a you know, a sibling, you've got a little sibling rivalry with, there could be a co-worker or a boss where there's these small tensions, these small conflicts, but an enemy, that's that's pretty rare. Mm. Like to have a, a true, genuine enemy, uh, it's pretty rare and the Buddhists think, man, this is this is a phenomenal this is opportunity. It. Yeah. <laughs> so, yeah, an enemy coming along, I can really test myself <laughs> now. It's, it's pretty easy to be Buddhist and happy mm. when everything's going well. When the enemy pops along, that's when you can really test yourself out. Mate, I wonder if um, yeah, hanging out in the caves all day. I think the the Buddhists should come here to the West. They'll be copping a lot more enemies than <laughs> everyone just hanging out and being friendly in caves. But there's another real positive thing about enemies. Like if you sometimes we wish for a world where we never encounter some kind of enemy or obstacle. But if you really think about it, when you were a little baby, you pop out of your mum's womb and. Is that a bit crass? Is that no, no that's good. That's, that's all right. In the past when you've said that, you've used a dip other terms that okay. were more crass. I pop, think the womb goes all right. Pop out of the mum's, <laughs> your, your mum's womb <laughs> and all of a sudden at that moment, you probably wish that the whole world was goo-goo, gaga noises and everything that just came your way and you got what you want. Yeah, you're getting fed this mushy food. Mm. Everybody, you, you just cry out and someone brings you a toy or you gets to wipe your ass or anything that you need is done for you. So, encountering challenges and enemies are really the only way to actually grow and develop into someone who's got any kind of spiritual and emotional depth and it's all this resistance that is necessary for any kind of growth. In the time of the Buddha, there was a woman named Kizagatami. Now, she suffered the death of her only child. Unable to accept it, she ran from person to person, seeking something, some kind of medicine, some kind of cure to restore the life of her child. And everybody said, oh, you need to go and see the Buddha. The Buddha's got the perfect medicine for you. So, when Kizagatami went up to see the Buddha and paid homage and she said, can you make a medicine that will restore my child? And the Buddha said, yeah, I know exactly what you need. I know such a medicine. But in order to make it, I'm going to need these certain ingredients. 
What I need you to do is you need to bring me a handful of mustard seeds, but I require that these mustard seeds must be taken from a household where nobody has ever died. No child, no spouse, no parent, no servant, nobody in that household has ever died. So the woman said, oh yeah, I'll go from house to house. I'm going to look for these nice mustard seeds. Everybody was willing to give her the seeds, but when she said, has anybody ever died that you, that you know? She couldn't find any home that death had not visited. In one house, it was a daughter. In another house, it was a friend. In another house, it was a husband. In another house, it was a parent. Everywhere she went, she found the suffering of death. Seeing that she was not alone in her grief, Kizugatami was finally able to let her child's lifeless body return to the Buddha, who said with great compassion, you thought you were alone when you lost your son, but the law of death is that it is among all living creatures, there is no permanence. Very interesting story there. So, Kizugatami's search really teaches her and us that no one is going to be living free from suffering and loss. So, it wasn't like she was singled out by the universe for this terrible misfortune. It's something that all of us over our, say, 85 years right now, we're going to be experiencing some kind of serious suffering or death. It's just part of being human. So, our pain and our suffering, it is this universal phenomenon, but we don't have an easy time in accepting these things. We've got a, a vast repertoire of strategies for trying to avoid the experience of suffering, but inevitably, there's going to be something that comes and hits us. So, we need to learn some kind of uh, tools or techniques or strategies to deal with this suffering when it inevitably comes upon us. So, the Dalai Lama and Buddhism, there is an approach to the human suffering that includes a possibility of freedom from suffering, but it starts from accepting suffering as a natural part of the human existence. So, in our daily lives, problems are going to come. The biggest problems in our lives are the ones that, were, that are coming no matter what you do. Things like old age, illness, death. And one way to try and solve them is to just avoid them completely and not think about them. It's going to provide temporary relief, but it's really not going to get to the root cause of the suffering. So, there is a better approach and you need to directly confront your suffering and you're going to be in a better position to appreciate the depth and nature of the problem. The analogy he uses is like think you think you're going to, into a battle, think you're in a war. If you're scared of going to war, you don't want to come across any enemies, you're afraid of combat, so you just think, oh, I'm not going to think about this, I'm going to turn a blind eye, I'm going to pretend it's not going to happen. But as soon as that enemy sneaks up from you from behind, you're completely unprepared, you're paralyzed by fear, they're going to slice your head off. Mm. Alternatively, if you recognize that this is inevitable, I'm going to war, a situation like this is going to pop up and then you think about your personal fighting capability, you think about their fighting capability, you think about what sorts of weapons they might have, you think about what techniques they might use to try to surprise you, you think about what you can do to surprise them, all of a sudden, by thinking about what is going to happen in the future, you're now in a much better position to engage in this battle. For example, think about old age and death. It's probably something we sweep a bit under the rug here in the West. If you try and forget about them, sooner or later, that enemy is going to come and just chop your head off and all that. Yeah, that's it. But if you actually think and contemplate about mortality, which is very popular in Buddhism, not only are you going to accept it much more freely when it comes, there is also upside and less suffering throughout your life because in knowing it's going to come, you're more likely to make the decisions up front that's going to lead to less regret down the, down the road. So, there are all these external sources of suffering. So, like our death, like our illnesses or the death of other people, or we lose our job, we crash our car, we get dumped. There are all these external things, but there are also 
internal things, self-created suffering. So things that we create within ourselves. And normally it's probably like a, a sense of uh, impending doom that something bad is going to happen to you. So you spend all your time worrying about the things that are about to come. We tend to take small things way too seriously. We blow them up out of all proportion. And these small things end up having a profound effect on our happiness. Yeah, perhaps these self-created sufferings the most common for your, your, your day-to-day life. And it's really this victimhood narrative. Oh, oh, I shouldn't be experiencing this whenever anything really happens to you. So, although pain and suffering is experienced by all human beings, it seems like Eastern cultures appear to have a much better acceptance of it, partly due to beliefs like Buddhism, but partly due to it's just more visible in countries. Like, I remember going through Varanasi in India and there was just lines and lines of people just on the footpath who were homeless, missing limbs, disease, and on the, the verge of death, really, in some places. So, because it's visible, you're going to see it. And then compare that to us, a lot of us will send our grandparents to a nursing home or something like that, put them in a hospital, and you don't really need to see them and see how they slowly demise towards death. So, this like covering up or this hiding of the suffering in, in, uh, in Western culture, it leads us to believe that the world is, is nice and fluffy and clouds and roses and puppies flying around, but that's, that just makes it worse. It, you know, I guess it makes us more fragile by pretending that bad things aren't going to happen, by, by ignoring the suffering that's inevitable, we're then less prepared to deal with it when it does come upon us. I think this is hitting a really pertinent point today in that our expectations of the world, I think it's really common for younger people to assume that life is meant to be all, as you said, uh, puppy dogs flying through the air <laughs> yeah. and roses and um, when the first suffering hits, you don't get that first job or something. People do sink into depression because perhaps their expectations of the world don't meet reality. And in the East, expectations does re- reflect uh, a bit closer to reality. Yeah, I think that I think technology probably plays a part in this as well. Did you see that doco, The Social Dilemma? Yeah. Yeah, Mate, so- I was like pulling your head in to try and watch it. So, you watched it last night. <laughs> yeah, I checked it out a, a day or two ago uh, and it was. Uh, it just goes to show that if – I guess it ties back to the thing we are talking before about relativity as well, like always comparing yourself to others. When you just see everybody's living these perfect lives, especially for like for young people, for, mm. for teenagers who just think everybody else is living the perfect life, mm. they're just they're, – they're losing their – ability to deal with anything bad that comes their way. Yeah, you flick on Instagram, you see someone just posting all their highlights of their whole entire life and you just got people only posting that stuff. You're sitting there in your bedroom thinking, why the hell am I suffering? Why the hell am I not feeling as good as all these people on Insta? So, the ability to shift perspective is one of the most powerful and effective tools we can develop to, to deal with life's problems. So, by practicing this, you can use certain experiences and tragedies to develop a calmness of mind. So, again, if something bad really happens, rather than being a victim from it, you can use it as an opportunity to practice this calmness. Yeah, it seems like at the moment, whenever problems arise, our outlook becomes narrow. All of our attention gets focused uh, on either the problem itself or about worrying about the problem and what it may do. In this sense, that we're not only going through these difficulties, but we get self-absorbed into the problem. But realizing that this is what we all do naturally, we can recognize that there's a different path. That recognizing that it's not something that's been done to us, it's not something that we're isolated in, it's not something that you know we're the victim and that it's why is this only happening to us. We can recognize that other people go through something similar. And often, as you said, 
there's plenty of people around the world who are going through something much, much worse than this. 